Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3? We have begun a study through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings here at Calvary. And we've gotten as far as chapter 3. In fact, we began chapter 3 last week, where the very first verse says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And so right away we're introduced to this interesting person named John the Baptist. Now, as we said last week, the world looks at John, I think, like a total kook. Okay, I mean, come on. Guy living out in the wilderness in uh, kind of a Tarzan camel hair outfit, uh, eating uh, locusts and wild honey. I mean, the world looks at somebody like that, you know, saying repent. In the world's eyes, nothing can be more bizarre, nothing can be a stranger caricature of religion than this person, John the Baptist. Yes, that's how the world saw John, no doubt. But see, God saw John as his man. In fact, John the Apostle began his gospel with the words, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came to be a witness, to bear witness of the light. That through him all might believe. He was not the light. Jesus is the light. He was sent to bear witness of that light. So John's ministry was from God. And John was a little unorthodox, no doubt. But it's interesting that the men and women of God that make the greatest impact on the world for him are often those that are most hated and misunderstood. And you know what? That's okay. It goes with the territory. The more you want to be committed to God, the more you want to be used by God, the more the world is going to think you're weird and they're going to probably persecute you all the more. But as we're going to see in Matthew 5, uh, in the words we're all familiar with, as Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hey, look, when the world persecutes us, we know we're on the right team. We know we're doing something right. Now, John was a prophet. In fact, as we said last time, Jesus is going to tell us in, I think, chapter 11, that he was the greatest prophet that ever lived. That takes us back at first. John, greater prophet than Elijah, Elisha, these great miracle workers, Isaiah, Daniel. Yes, and we'll see why when we get there. But John was the greatest prophet that ever lived. And he was a man that came with a message from God. Now, a prophet is somebody who's a true prophet, of course, somebody who speaks on behalf of God. And John's message was pretty simple. Repent, which means to turn your life around because the kingdom of heaven is here. Well, you know what? That's a simple but powerful message. And we looked at what that meant. And uh, you can get the CD from last time if you're interested. But this morning, I want to then pick up where we left off. We talked about the man last week and his message. And we started with his ministry. We started with his ministry, the ministry of John the Baptist. And as we said last time, it's John the Baptizer. Okay. Not John the Baptist as in John the Lutheran or Methodist. Some people think that that's the way it is. and No, it's not that way. He was John the Baptizer. And his ministry essentially was threefold. That of preparation, separation, and confrontation. Preparation. And we're still reviewing from last time. But we read in verses 1 through 3 of Matthew, chapter 3. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, listen, 
prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now that's a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And as we said last time, whenever a king was going to be visiting an area of his kingdom, they would always send out a herald several weeks and even several months in advance of the king's coming. And the herald's job was to announce the king was coming. So we need to get things cleaned up and fixed. We need to get those roads repaired, all those ruts and, and uh, potholes need to be filled in. Uh, all the high places smoothed out, the crooked places made straight. Uh, it also applies personally. You need to get those uh, yards cleaned up and those fences mended and so on. See, there was a lot of preparation that took place before the king actually arrived. And the herald's job was to go out there and he was to tell people, look, the king is coming. We want to clean things up. We want everything looking nice when the king arrives. And Matthew, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, says, Look, John was prophesied as being the herald or the forerunner of the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And it was his responsibility to go out and not to have people clean up their yards and houses, but to prepare their hearts through repentance for the coming of the king. And we talked about that. So first of all, preparation. Secondly, his ministry was one of separation. As we said, John lived a life of separation from the world. That's obvious because he was a voice crying where? In the wilderness. He was out in the wilderness. Now you say, well, yeah, but he was baptizing people down by the Jordan. That's where the Jordan was in the wilderness. I got it. You're right. But I think that the spiritual lesson the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us here is that if we're going to call people to separate themselves from the world and all of its sins and enticements, and isn't that what the gospel is all about? What is repentance? It's turning away from something, turning towards something else. You're turning away from a life of sin and worldliness to live a life of separation and consecration to God. So I think that the spiritual lesson the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us here is pretty obvious. If we're going to go out there preaching the gospel and telling people, look, you've got to separate yourself from this evil world system, then guess what? We had better live separated lives ourselves because hypocrisy will absolutely neutralize your ministry. The world is not dumb. I mean, they're not righteous, but they're not stupid. And they know when a person is being honest, when they're living what they proclaim to believe, when their preaching matches their lifestyle, and they know when people are saying one thing and then living another way. And that's why as Christians, the Bible says we are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. We are in this world. I mean, this is where God has put us. We, we can't help but be in the world, but we can certainly help the world being in us. That's where separation comes in. It's not a physical separation like people have lived in monasteries and, and, and moved out of populated areas. Well, John was that kind of a person, but John's life was not being held up as some, something that we should all emulate in every point. The basic principle is a life of separation. You can live a life of separation in a very crowded environment. I mean, you have, to, you have to work, you live in a neighborhood, that's fine. But just don't let the world get in you. When you speak the good news and when you tell people that God wants them to turn from this world system and come to Jesus and be consecrated to him, separated, well, we have to live that lifestyle ourselves. Very important point. We're not perfect but we must never be hypocrites. But you know what? John's life was not only separated, it was simple. It was simple. There's a lot to be said about living a simple life, a life that's not entangled with the cares of this life, which will hinder our ability to serve our king. 
In verse 4, we read, And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, you know, the world looks at that and goes, you know, come on, this guy is, he's, he's, he's weird, man. He's kooky. No, I think he was just committed. As we said last week, I don't believe that God is calling the rest of us to live that kind of a ascetic uh, life as John. He had a very important ministry, by the way. His ministry was unique. He was called upon by God to uh, herald the coming of the king. And as such, he needed to live a very devoted, a very disciplined life so that none of the enticements of the world distracted him and drew him away from his primary ministry. So John lived a very separated and yet very simple life. And I think that the principle is that if we're going to serve God properly, we have to come in contact with the world. But as Paul said, make sure you do it as lightly as possible. Because the world is a way of reaching out and getting us tentacles around us and dragging us away from the Lord. And so soon we're bound by debt. And we, it's just the world has a way of just wrapping us up and taking us out of the work of God. There's a lot to be said about not being entangled with the cares of this life to the point where it starts to drag you down and begins to hinder your walk with the Lord. Now, the purity of John's simple message, coupled with the power of his separated life, began to resonate with people. And the crowds began to come. In verse 5 it says, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were getting their hearts prepared for the coming of the king. What was the attraction to John? Well, first of all, nobody had heard the voice of God for 400 years in Israel. We talked about that. After Malachi finished his prophetic ministry, God stopped speaking. It's called the 400 silent years from Malachi to John. For 400 years, there was no, thus says the Lord, heard in Israel. The Jews were heartbroken. They thought God had forsaken them. I think God allowed this long pause to take place because he was about to speak the most momentous word in the history of mankind, the incarnation, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And for emphasis, I think God was quiet for 400 years until finally a voice in the wilderness cried out saying, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. That's powerful, right? So people went out to see a prophet when they had not seen a prophet in Israel for 400 years. I think secondly, they went out to see John and he attracted a crowd because these people knew how the establishment, the religious establishment was filled with phonies and charlatans. They knew that the religious leaders were a bunch of phonies, hypocrites. And I think John's life was a real rebuke to the self-indulgent, selfish, carnal lives of the religious leaders of his day. Here's a man that not only preached a life of holiness, he lived it. He not only preached about commitment to God, he exemplified it. And I think that people were hungry for something real. I think people are hungry for something real today. I think people are sick and tired of turning on the TV and seeing one charlatan rip-off artist after another. They want a voice crying in the wilderness, the pure, clear word of God. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So people came to see John. John's life was an open rebuke to the carnal spirituality of the leaders of his day. And so people came out to see John. 
because they wanted to hear what he had to say. And when he, they heard his message, they repented of their sins, they confessed them, and he baptized them. But of course, John's ministry also began to, tr- to attract the attention of others in the region. Don't you know, whenever God is moving, whenever the Holy Spirit is moving through a ministry, if the devil can't beat you through direct persecution, he will try to infiltrate in your ranks, because if you can't beat him, you do what? Join him. We saw this all the way back in Egypt, right? When God brought his people out of Egypt. Who came out of Egypt with the true people of God? The what? The mixed multitude. These were people who were not saved. Probably many of them were Egyptians. They saw the God of Israel moving. They wanted to be close to these miracles and all this power, but they didn't really have a heart to know God. And they were a mixed multitude. They came out with God's true people, and they were the first to murmur, the first to complain in the wilderness, and the first to begin to bring down the people of God. This is how it always is. Whenever God begins to move in a powerful way through a movement or through some revival somewhere, after a while the devil begins to lead people in that have no heart to really change, but give the appearance of genuineness, and they begin to water down the move of God, and they begin to peel hearts away from the Lord. So as John is out there ministering, and God is blessing, and people are coming out to hear him and repenting of their sins, he drew the attention of another group in the region. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, you children of snakes, wow! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. As I said, John's ministry was threefold, that of preparation, separation, and thirdly, confrontation. See, John's goal was not to build a big ministry by watering down the message so as to make it more appealing to those that were living in his day. John wasn't out to make a ministry name for himself by tickling ears and telling people what they want to hear. Exactly what's going on today in Paul's it would be an evidence of the last days, that people would no longer want to hear sound doctrine, but would gather to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears, telling them what they want to hear. John wasn't like that. I mean, take him or leave him, love him or hate him, all right? John was a straight shooter. And his goal was not to be a man-pleaser, but a God-glorifier. God help us to have more men and women like John. You know, Paul was that kind of a person. Didn't Paul say this in Galatians 1 verse 10? After saying some very hard things to the people of Galatia who were listening to false prophets and teachers and buying into heresy, after he said some pretty hard things to them, he said in verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bond slave of Christ. Paul is saying, look, either you're going to be a man pleaser or a God server. You can't be both. You can't serve two masters. So either you're going to devote your life as a pastor and a, and a Christian to honoring God and doing what he wants you to do, or you're going to try to be a man pleaser, but then you won't be a servant of God. He would go on to say in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, 
But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who, listen, tests our hearts. How does God test our hearts to see if we're going to stand up and speak the truth that he has given us to speak, if we're going to be like John and confront the culture, when the culture gets in our faces and tells us it's okay to sleep around, it's okay to, to believe in many roads that lead to God, it's okay that homosexuality is, is right or that abortion is good, are we going to stand up like John and confront the culture, or are we going to give in to peer pressure and the temptation for self-promotion? So a lot of pastors today are giving in to the temptation of self-promotion. See, God puts things into our past to test our hearts. And there's a lot of pastors who aren't passing the test. They are watering things down. They want to make it sound more appealing because the goal is to build a big ministry, to fill up empty seats in the sanctuary. Look, I'm convinced if John the, the Baptist were alive today and conducting his ministry, I'm personally convinced that most Christians would not be hanging out with him, wouldn't want to be seen with him, and would not agree with the way he was conducting his ministry. You know why? Because in their minds, John would be too harsh and judgmental, too unloving and condemning for their tastes. Many Christians today, I think, if John were preaching today, I think their response to his message would be this. I don't think we should talk about judgment when we present the gospel. God is a God of love, and we should try to win people to Christ based on the love of God, not on the fear of judgment. Now look, if you're feeling that way, let me just tell you this. I understand where you're coming from. Because I, too, love to talk about the love of God. It's an awesome thing. But you've got to understand that deleting any talk of hell and judgment from the gospel presentation is simply not biblical. You know, Jude, in his little one-chapter epistle, says in verses 22 and 3, he said, When you preach the gospel, on some have compassion. Preach the love of God. Be tender. Be, you know, be gentle. Why? Because they already know they're sinners. Life has already beat them up. They're broken because of their sin. You don't have to kick them when they're down kind of a thing. You just reach out with the love of God. Yeah, you've made a mess of your life. Yeah, it looks bad. But God loves you and is inviting you to become a member of his family. He's going to begin to work to repair the broken things. He's going to return to you the years the locusts have eaten and so on. But on the others who are hard-hearted, rebellious, in your face with their sin, Jude would go on to say, others save with fear. Scare them into the kingdom. Hold their feet to the fire long enough they scream a little bit and yank them out of the fire there. You know, this idea that um, we shouldn't be talking about hell. We should only talk about God's love. Do you realize that Jesus Christ talked about hell more than anyone else in the New Testament? In fact, he talked about hell more, listen to me, more than he talked about heaven or even love. And he did it because he didn't want anyone going to hell. Do you realize that today almost all evangelism is based on the love of God? Which is awesome. The problem is we hear very little, if any, talk of coming judgment anymore in the typical gospel presentation today. Do you realize that nowhere in the book of Acts, nowhere, did Peter or Paul or any of the other apostles ever use the love of God as a basis for presenting the gospel? That doesn't mean that we should never talk about God's love. I mean, the Bible does say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell, 
but have everlasting life, right? So God's love is a wonderful thing to talk about. But notice even in that verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him would not have to do what? Perish in hell. There's a balance, isn't there? Talk about God's love that loved you so much or loved the lost so much that he sent his son to rescue them from what was coming. There is something really bad coming, folks. It's called judgment. The word gospel means good news. It implies the presence of something bad. Somebody runs up to you and says, man, I got good news. Usually it's because something bad is going on and this person's got some good news that's going to make it okay. Do you know what the gospel really is? And we've moved away from this over the last generation or so, 40 or 50 years. You know what the gospel really is? Let me tell you what the gospel really is. The gospel is an emergency alert siren. We live in the Midwest. We have tornadoes in the Midwest, right? Every one of our communities has tornado sirens. And sometimes in the summer, all of a sudden that thing will start up, right? What do you feel when you hear that thing kick on? Do you feel uplifted? Do you feel, oh, comforted? Do you feel happy? No, you get scared. Because that siren is telling you, run and take cover, something bad is coming. See, that's what the gospel was designed to be. Jesus entered this world on a search and rescue mission. This world is going down, literally. And Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. And he did it by calling out to them, come to me quickly. Something bad is coming, it's judgment. You've got to flee the wrath to come. And if you come to me, I'll save you. I'll protect you. No, we've turned the gospel today, though, into happy talk. It's not a siren, emergency alarm system, warning people to run from the wrath. No, it's happy talk. You need Jesus. Well, yeah, why do I need Jesus? Well, he loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. He is going to be there, and he's going to really make things wonderful, and you won't have any bad days ever again, you know, and urging people to receive Jesus, not really as a, a savior from hell, but as a kind of a sanctified butler whose whole mission now is to serve them and make their life more comfortable and more happy. And guess what? If they come to Jesus on those terms with that idea, guess what happens when tribulation and trials come because of the word? They get very resentful, don't they? I was sold a bill of goods. I, I was told a lie. Well, yes, you were. Because some well-meaning Christian thought the best way to reach you with the gospel was to present it like, a, like some kind of a miracle cure-all for the ills of life. Just receive Jesus. He'll take care of all the headaches of life. Take them away. You'll have sunshine and happiness. I mean, you know, as you walk through the path of life, you know, smell the roses the whole way. How sad that is. It disillusions people. It's not honest. Yes, God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. Eternally speaking, right? God loves us right now, of course. The wonderful plan for our lives is he's going to bring us to heaven someday where we're going to live with him forever. Now, between conversion and glorification, there's a lot of hard road. There's a lot of tough times coming. There's persecution. There's internal struggles. There's opposition from the devil. Your own family will turn against you many times. You're going to lose your friends. You might even lose your job. These are not happy things. But Jesus is with you. He'll take care of it. But it's not going to be an easy life. So look, 
you know, when people say, I don't like them hellfire and damnation preachers. Can I just tell you this? John the Baptist and Jesus himself were hellfire and damnation preachers. You know, there are many who say, maybe you've heard this, I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell. Hell is right here on the earth. Say, this is hell. Well, depending on the life you're living, this might seem like hell at times. Let me just tell you something. Your worst day on earth won't compare to your best day in hell. Uh, there is no best days, but you understand what I'm talking about. You think it's bad now? You don't want to see hell. Because hell will magnify whatever you're going through here on the earth by a billion times a billion infinitely. And it's just delusional. It's people trying to bury their head in the sand and escape the reality of hell by saying, look, heaven's real, but hell isn't. Well, you know, Jesus, as I said, talked about hell more than anybody else. And he often talked about hell in the same sentence he talked about heaven. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus said, And the wicked, they're going to go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Here the Lord not only talked about both heaven and hell in the same sentence, but he said they were both what? Everlasting. They're both eternal. So this idea that heaven is real but hell is not is a fairy tale. Look, the whole point of preaching the gospel is to tell people that God wants to save them. Now, the question is today, save them from what? I mean, that was not a question in the old days that people had any ambiguity about. Everybody knew, because the preachers were all preaching it, what Jesus wanted to save them from. Today, it's a little fuzzy. You turn on television and radio, Christian TV and radio, and you start listening to some of these guys, you get the impression Jesus wants to save them from what? Depression, poverty, low self-esteem? The Bible says he wants to save you from the reality of coming judgment. He wants to save you from eternal judgment and hell. And I'm not sure how we can really talk to people about receiving Jesus as Savior without telling them what he is saving them from. I mean, look again how the New Testament presents the reality of coming judgment as the basis and the impetus for receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. I, there's dozens and dozens. I'll just read you three. John 3, verse 36 he who believes in the Son, Jesus, has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. Paul says, We are waiting for his Son from heaven, whom the Father raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Colossians 3, verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. See, the reason that people, I'm talking about the world now in general, the reason that the world absolutely hates when Christians talk about coming judgment is because they have told themselves there is no judgment. They can live pretty much any way they want, and God loves them, and God will accept their life no matter what they're doing. See, if you talk about hell, you talk about judgment, now you're talking about a God who's righteous and has got a standard that he expects us to live by. If we're not living according to that standard, he's going to punish those who don't. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear God is love, and pretty much everybody makes it to heaven because God's love. That's wrong. We're going to see more about that in a moment. But this idea that we are, like John, to preach the good news in love, but to talk about what the realities are, that judgment is coming to this world. And Jesus came to save us from that judgment. I mean, that kind of preaching used to dominate pulpits all across America and gave rise to periods of revival and to the great awakenings of the 18th century. Men like Jonathan Edwards were used to preach messages that woke people up. 
You remember his famous, most famous sermon, no doubt. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Think about that title for a second. Can you see that in a marquee of a church today? Today's message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. People don't want that. They want to hear the message today is, you know, the 10 ways you can be successful or your, your best life now or something else, you know, that's designed to kind of, you know, make you feel good about yourself. Listen to what Edwards said. You can read the whole sermon online. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The wrath of God burns against them. Can you imagine this being preached in this day, the day of political correctness that we're living in? Think about that for a minute. How far away we've gotten from messages that impacted this nation and brought it to its knees in repentance and revival. Everything today is politically correct. Everything today is designed to be warm, fuzzy, non-confrontational, you know, keep things upbeat and positive. That's the goal of a lot of preachers today. Why? Because that's what brings them into the church. Look, I'm not interested in building a big church. I'm interested in building strong disciples. Those who have really received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and understand it's all about taking up a cross and following in his footsteps. I'm really not interested in presenting a Christ that is a sanctified butler. And prayer is a little bell that you ring for the butler to come and bring up another pillow. The Christian life is not like that. Paul and Barnabas tried to encourage the Galatian Christians said, It is through many tribulations and persecutions that we enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, quickly. Let's just look at these verses that we've read, because I, you know, they're pretty self-explanatory. Of course, when John preached his message, many sincere people came, listened, confessed their sins, repented, and were baptized by John. But John was pretty tough on the phonies, on the religious hypocrites, even as Jesus himself was. The Lord Jesus Christ was very, very patient with all kinds of people, harlots, tax collectors, sinners who he had no patience for were the religious hypocrites. And we see some of them come to John here. And he first of all confronted their hypocrisy in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. Can you imagine a pastor saying that today? I mean, the deacons would take him on the side and go, look, you know what? You've got to soften that tone up, man. Brood of vipers. He obviously, again, never read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Look, the Pharisees, first of all, were a sect of Judaism. Their name means separatists or separated ones. From what I understand, they got started in the Babylonian captivity because they were afraid that the Jewish culture would be completely absorbed into the Babylonian culture, and they didn't want that to happen. They wanted to stand firm for the Jewish way of life, to keep it intact as they were in enemy territory. And so they... Started in Babylon, and then they, when, after the captivity was over with, they came back to the land of Israel, and they remained. And again, they arose to defend the Jewish way of life against all foreign influences. They were strict legalists and ultra-conservatives. They believed that the entire, our Old Testament, their Jewish scriptures, were all inspired by God, all of it. So they were very, very conservative that way, fundamentalists of their day. The Sadducees were also a sect of Judaism. But they were liberal in their theology. They only believed the first five books of Moses were inspired by God. The Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. 
Everything else was not inspired. That's why when Jesus spoke to the Sadducees, he only quoted the first five books. Because that's all they accepted as being inspired by God. That was enough to, to put them down and put them in their place. But the Sadducees were the supreme materialists of their day. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels or miracles or life after death. They were much smaller in number than the Pharisees, but they were more wealthy, much more wealthy, because they were the aristocrats. They were connected to Rome because they, they really believed in working with Rome. Where the Pharisees wanted to remain separate from Roman influence, the Sadducees partnered with the state. Because of that, they were the ones that controlled the temple and all of its concessions, the money changers, and those that were selling the animal sacrifices, which brought a lot of money to the coffers, right? They were the ones that controlled the priesthood. Now, most of the Pharisees and probably all the Sadducees were notorious hypocrites. And I think that John's lifestyle was an open rebuke to their worldly hypocrisy. Here they claimed to be men of God, and yet they were in bed with Rome. They were sponging off of the government. They were using their religious position to line their own pockets in many ways. And here comes John, and I think that that's why God called John to such a life of separation and simplicity. Because his life was an open rebuke to those worldly spiritual leaders. And John was called to confront them. And the people were not stupid. They knew who the, who the rip-off artists were pretending to be men of God. And this guy in the wilderness with no earthly comforts, living totally separate and a devoted life for the Lord. And so they were drawn to John. And as they were drawn to John, the people, well, the Pharisees and Sadducees got wind of it. And so they came to John. Not because they really wanted to repent of their sins. They came to look spiritual in the eyes of the people who considered John a great prophet. Again, total hypocrisy. So John confronted their hypocrisy. Secondly, he challenged them to authenticity. In verse 8, he simply says, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. What is John saying? John is saying, guys, I am not into religious rituals that are going to make you feel spiritual. I'm looking for a reality here. Look, the ritual without the reality is worthless. If a person doesn't really want to change and get their life right with God, you can dunk them in water every day for the rest of their life, and it's not going to mean anything. That's the problem with religion. The re religion, for the most part, is all surface. It's all outward. It's facade, isn't it? People go to church, and they put on the religious facade. They act holy and righteous. They light the candles. They say this. They do these things. It's all hypocrisy if it's not intended to really, you know. John is saying, look, I have come to call people to repentance to prepare their hearts for the coming of the king. You guys aren't here because you want to, to, to prepare your hearts for the coming of the king. You're here to make a show. You're here to let people see how holy and how spiritual you are. John says, you know what? If you are really sincere, go and bring forth some fruits worthy of, do some change. I want to see some change in your life that's going to indicate you're serious about getting your life turned around for the Lord. Very important point. He challenged them to authenticity. Thirdly, he corrected their false security. Verse 9, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. John said, I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. So you've got to understand the, the Jewish mindset. We've talked about this many times. The Jewish people so revered Abraham, and they believed he was so righteous that his righteousness was all that all the other Jews needed. And as long as they were the physical descendants of Abraham, they had Abraham's blood in their veins, that was all God cared about. 
They literally taught the rabbis back then that it was impossible for a Jew, even an unbelieving Jew, to go to hell. Because Father Abraham stood outside the gates of hell to pluck any unbelieving Jew from out of the line of those going in. Because I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a child of Abraham. John says, are you kidding me? Are you serious? God could raise up kids to Abraham from these stones here. You think your, you think your nationality is going to save you? You can have the, the blood of Abraham in your veins and not have the faith of Abraham in your heart. And that's the point Paul makes in Romans and Galatians about the Jews. Putting all their faith in their heritage, in their, in their nationality. It's a lot of people who think because they're Americans, they're Christian. Like it's a national thing. You know? If you ask the most average American, are you, are you a Christian? Well, of course I am. I'm not a Muslim or a Jew. I'm a Christian. Now you, you know, we, we have had the privilege of being raised in a Christian country. That doesn't mean you're automatically a Christian. It doesn't mean you're automatically a Christian because you go to church. There are some people that go to church every day of their lives. They're not saved. There's a false sense of security that a lot of people have. It goes way beyond the Jews. It's a lot of denominations and people who go to those churches and those denominations that honestly believe that because they were baptized and confirmed, they're on their way to heaven. They're secure. A ritual has saved me. And John is saying... My baptism is not a ritual. It is an outward evidence that something is changing in your heart. You want to get your life right with God. This dipping you in the Jordan River is not going to do anything. It symbolizes, though, that your heart is changing and wants to be cleansed by the blood of the one who is coming after me, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He's the Lamb of God whose blood will take away the sin of the world. I'm nobody. I'm just pointing the way to him. This ritual is meaningless. The same is true with any ritual in the church. Again, baptism, confirmation, anything like that. People are putting their trust in rituals, ceremonies, their heritage, the denomination they were born into. i got news for you. None of that's going to save you. Only a heart that is given over to Christ, that is repented of its sins, that's the heart that Jesus will come into. And that's the heart of a person he's going to save. So first of all, he confronted their hypocrisy, challenged them to authenticity. Thirdly, he corrected their false security. And finally, he concluded with a solemn warning. Verses 10 through 12, and we'll just look at verse 10. And even now, John says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What does this mean? This is a reference to the coming of Jesus. Remember now, John's just the forerunner. John's just the herald. Jesus is the important one. And John is making reference, I believe, to the coming of Jesus, who is, was going to be showing up at the end of this chapter, which we'll look at next time. But John was saying, look, I'm nobody, but there's coming one after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. And when he gets here, he's going to start separating people. He's going to do it by preaching the gospel, is what John is saying here. First to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles. Those who received the gospel, their lives would bring forth the fruit of righteousness. Those who rejected the gospel, their lives would bring forth no fruit of righteousness. And listen, they would eventually be removed from the earth and cast into hell, just like a dead tree is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus used the same kind of imagery in Luke chapter 6, in verses 43 and 45. Listen to what the Lord said. He said, for a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. Verse 45, 
a good man out of the good treasure of his heart, a good man would mean those who have received the gospel, brings forth good fruit, the fruit of righteousness. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. And Jesus would say, by their fruit you will know them. And so he begins to bring about a solemn warning now. In verse 11 he says, Indeed, I baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the word baptism means to immerse. That's all it means. Baptizo just means to immerse. But it doesn't imply into what? We know from archaeology, the word was used of ships that had sunk and were now baptized in the sea, immersed in the sea. We know the word was used of cloth that was immersed into a vat of dye. It was now baptized into the dye. And it, again, it just means to be immersed. Whatever you want to immerse something into, that's a baptism. Here in Matthew 3, verse 11, two different baptizers and three different baptisms are mentioned. The first baptizer is John, who said, I indeed baptize you with what? Water, under repentance. So John was the baptizer, and he was baptizing people into water, which was just an outward thing that he did because they had confessed their sins and wanted to receive the coming king. That was John's ministry. The second baptizer is Jesus, who John says will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, next week we're going to talk about what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All I'll say about it right now is that it's good. It's only for people who are saved and on their way to heaven. But the baptism of fire is not good. It speaks of those who have rejected the gospel and will someday be baptized or immersed into the lake of fire or hell. Jesus reinforces this distinction by using another metaphor based on something that they all were familiar with, the winnowing of threshed grain. And we'll end with verse 12. John said, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, they were all familiar with this. They were all farmers. They all knew what, uh, what John was talking about. In those days, when they would harvest their wheat, they would take the stalks of wheat and lay it on the threshing floor. And then they would either walk all over it, or often they would take uh, wooden sleds with the nails sticking out of the bottom, and they would drag the sleds back and forth over the, the sheaves of wheat, which would separate the husks or the chaff from the grain. This would all be done on the threshing floor, which was often... Uh, at the top of a hill, and all the hills in Israel are made of rock, basically, and they would just grind down the top so that it was flat, and then they would lay the stalks of wheat, they would thresh it, which is, again, walking on it, dragging the threshing sled over it until the husks were separated from the grain, and then they would take either a pitchfork or a shovel, and they would begin to just take this stuff and just throw it up into the air. Because the threshing floor was on a mount, top of a hill, the idea was there was a, a breeze, right? And when you would throw this stuff up into the air, the chaff, which was very light, would blow away and the wheat was heavier, would fall to the ground. That is how they separated the wheat from the chaff. That's what the psalmist, by the way, was talking about in Psalm, verse one, uh, Psalm 1 verse 4, when he said, the wicked are like the chaff which the wind blows away. He's talking about judgment there. Now, 
If they didn't have a site, a threshing floor built on top of a mount somewhere, maybe you lived in a valley, you didn't have a mount or a hill to build this threshing floor on, so you had a threshing floor where there's really no wind. What they did was after they threshed it and separated the chaff from the wheat, then they would take these large fans. I mean, you've seen them on poles, you know, like you ever watch an Egyptian movie or whatever, and they're fanning the pharaohs with these giant, you know, big fans on a pole, you know. Well, they had those for the winnowing. It's a winnowing fan. And several people would just stand over this pile of threshed grain, and they would just start whipping these fans up and down, and it would blow the chaff off to the side. Then they would gather the wheat, the grain, into the barn, take all the chaff, gather it up, and they would burn it. And that's what John is talking about is going to happen when Jesus begins to conduct his ministry. Now, of course, he came the first time really to offer people salvation. Second time, he will definitely separate the wheat from the chaff. But let me read verse 12 again. We'll finish. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. His believers into heaven is the idea. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, send the wicked to hell. Look, that is not a popular message today, is it? Because again, people want to focus all on God's love because a God who doesn't judge is a God that you don't have to be afraid of. And look, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? The fear of the Lord is to hate what? Evil. Our God is a God of love. And He's merciful and gracious. He's also holy and righteous and just. He has to punish sin. Now, He sent His Son to take our punishment on Himself. That if anyone would come to Jesus by faith and receive Him as Savior and Lord, then all of their sins would be placed upon Christ and taken out of the way. Those who refuse to come to Christ, who refuse to bow the knee and say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and take control of my life, well, they can do that because God's given them a free will, but someday they're going to stand before the Lord, and like chaff, they're going to be removed and placed into a place of burning forever. That's not a popular message, but it's a correct message, and the church needs to get back to it. Because Christians, well-meaning Christians, are giving people the idea that because of God's love, which they emphasize to the extreme, and don't balance it out with God's righteousness and holiness and coming judgment upon sin, what they're doing is they're giving people an idea about God where he's soft on sin. He doesn't really care about sin. He's, got, he's a God of love. And as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter if you're married. Look, you, you love each other. You can go ahead and live together. You, you love each other, Right? God sees the love. Who needs a piece of paper? That's not going to make us love each other. We just love each other. We're committed to each other. We don't need to have a piece of paper to... God, keep telling yourself that kind of stuff. That's the devil getting you to think you can play fast and loose with sin and God doesn't care. And you know what? Jesus Christ right now is thoroughly cleansing out his threshing floor. That's right here in the earth. Today is the day of salvation. There's still time to flee the wrath to come. You haven't made a decision for Christ. He is separating the wheat from the chaff right now. We were once chaff, weren't we? By the grace of God, we became wheat, saved. You can become wheat if you're chaff. That's what it means, right? But if you refuse to receive Christ, you're going to stay chaff. And someday the threshing floor is going to be done. And now the grain is gathered into heaven 
and the chaff is burned in hell. That's a day you don't want to stand before God and see apart from Christ. That's why the Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God without Christ. May God give us the grace to preach the truth in love, but to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you've taken chaff like us. They're worthless. The dead in trespasses and sins. And by your grace, you've made us your children as we have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. Father, give us grace now to get out there and preach the good news, but to preach it accurately, to preach it purely, uncompromisingly, not worried about what people are going to think about us, but just stand up and honor you. And we do pray, Lord, for all of those here today who really don't know you. Maybe they think they do. Father, please work in their heart. Open their eyes. So many are going to say on the day of judgment, Lord, what do you mean I'm not going to heaven? I, I went to church. I, I served you. I, I, I loved you. No, you didn't really love me. You loved sin more than me. You practiced lawlessness. You did not submit yourself to my standards. Open their eyes, Lord. Open the eyes of our loved ones who don't know you before it's too late, that they would flee the wrath to come as well. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. You're so good to us. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.